Welcome to the Haber Show. This week's guest is Nate Duncan, an NBA guru who is one of the smartest dudes on the NBA. You can find him on the Dunk Don podcast, the NBA cast, the Hollinger and Duncan show podcast. You can find him on Twitter. He's really, really smart and really good at basketball. We'll talk about that. We'll discuss the John Beeline story in Cleveland, what that means for Kevin Love and the Cavs. We'll revisit the Russ and Chris Paul trade and get into Duncan's top 10 prospects in the NBA. You'll want to find out where he has Ben Simmons. He'll also rank his top five media members in pickup hoops. So without further ado, my conversation with Nate Duncan. How's it going, my man? Oh, it's, you know, I'm on West Coast time. I was at the Warriors game last night. Just woke up feeling a little bit, not myself, a little bit like a slug, but I'm going to try and, and power through. Feel a little sluggish. <laughs> oh man, I woke up to that news this morning, and I just I did the face palm emoji. I was just like, no, really, really, like this Cleveland situation couldn't sour anymore, and then that happens. Oh, I think there's there's still some room. So I was discussing this with a, another media member last night. Do you believe that this is going to get fired? You know, I did see the Cleveland.com report that Kobe Altman was on a scouting trip and had to end it prematurely so that he could go and fly back to Cleveland to figure this thing out. And reading the ESPN report, I, I noticed that the headline said he apologized, but nowhere in the actual story, Nate, did it say he apologized to teammates. It seemed like what he did was he reached out to his teammates individually. And for those listening who don't know what we're talking about, John Beeline, the 66-year-old head coach of the Cleveland Cavaliers, hired by uh, Kobe Altman, the GM, or you might say hired by uh, Dan Gilbert, the owner, who's a Michigan guy, a Detroit guy, who uh, might have some ties to the state of Michigan or Michigan Wolverines. Anyway, John Beeline, apparently in an off-day film session, called uh, the players a, a bunch of thugs, in a film session, which he is infamously long film sessions around the league. It's apparently was 45 minutes and it's dragged on all season long. And this has become a thing that he is mostly a college coach who's learning the life in the NBA, but he just called his players predominantly African-American, a bunch of thugs after criticizing their play recently and saying, you're no longer playing like a bunch of thugs. So he apologized, I guess, to the teammates after the fact saying, uh, I misspoke. And what I meant to say was slugs, which who hasn't misspoken and said thugs instead of slugs, right? Like who among us? Yeah, my wife took one semester of a linguistics class, but I'm guessing she would probably tell me that th and sla require markedly different motions (laughs) within your mouth to make it his what he said was he didn't remember saying thugs that after he was told by his staff and presumably players it got back to one of the players afterwards that he said thugs he said i must have said thugs but i meant to say slugs and we do misspeak on occasion it's not entirely out of the realm of possibility but like what percent chance do you put on his story actually being true? Uh unlikely. Unlikely like 5% to be true. chance or like 30% chance? Mm, I would say probably This is close. an analytics podcast. This is an podcast, an, yes, right? the the Haber yeah. show is an analytics friendly podcast. We we don't speak in generalities. We actually put hard numbers cuz we are data driven. Ah, nerds. <laughs> um I would say uh I think Me personally, given the facts of the situation and the fact that he was 40 years as a head coach, and I'm not calling him a racist, I'm not calling him any of that. Like, I don't don't know John Beeline, but given the fact that Altman, Kobe Altman, the GM, had to fly back from his scouting trip and the fact that players haven't come out yet, like, there aren't quotes from players who are African American saying, look, he screwed up. Uh, He owned it, he apologized, and we're good. At least as far as I could tell. um, That in the ESPN report and the Cleveland.com report, in the aftermath, there wasn't like Tristan Thompson texted ESPN, uh, it's no big deal, we talked about it, it's all good. What Beeline said was, 
I reached out to eight players immediately afterwards. I made aware of this, that I misspoke. And I tried to explain to them what I meant to say. And they told me they understood. So, so those eight players were Matthew Delvadova, Kevin Love, Ante Zizic, uh, Jetty Osman. <laughs> Maybe some former players in there too. Mike Miller. Uh, I would say it's probably 30%. I, I would I would say it's probably 30%. And if he was 46 years old or 36 years old, maybe this is different. But I just have a hard time believing him, given given how old fashioned he has been in the in with this team, and not understanding the nuances of the NBA. And look, he's he's spent 40 years. Four. I'm not even 40 years old, Nate. I I don't even know. I, I 40 years ago in the same profession talking to the same age of uh young males this seems like if you did misspeak uh it's hard to believe now i don't think it'll get him fired um because i'm not so sure kobe altman is making the call here i think it's dan gilbert and if you give a guy a five-year deal which to me is way it's for a guy who's never coached in the nba a five-year deal i don't expect him to get fired over this yeah, I don't either. I, that was the, the discussion I was having with the, that me remember. And his, his initial position was that he was going to get fired or he was going to suffer some health issues or he would resign. And I was like, okay, you want to make a bet before the end of the season? And he thought about it. It's like, no, you know, I, I don't actually want to make that bet. So, oh, uh, yeah, I think, he, I, I think he'll at least last the season. Another thing that I was discussing last night was, well, would he just want to resign and go back to college at this point? I said, no, you, there's no way you want this to be your last memory, your last perception. And last thing I'll say too, you know, you said you think it's more likely than not that he said this and meant it. I think it's more, if you're going to give him some benefit of the doubt, you're, you're looking at his age as a reason he did say it. I kind of agree with you there. That's also could be a reason that, you know, old people just like, mess up and say the wrong thing more often than people who are younger in theory. So that's maybe that's the one thing, but you know, you probably wouldn't want to hire a coach who's going to just mess up and say something like this. So, I mean, at a minimum, it shows incompetence, if not, you know, outright even malice potentially. Right. And I think one of the other dynamics here is the power dynamics where if he says this at Michigan with some 19 year olds who aren't getting paid $20 million a year, do, does this even become a story? Because on that campus, Beeline is is larger than life, right? And so I kind of feel like the power dynamics that at, exist in the NBA locker room are very different than they are in a college locker room. Where if a player, you know, leaks this to a reporter in at, at Michigan, I'm not so sure it gets out there, or at least he doesn't feel like he has enough to. Uh, you know, enough power in this, in this dynamic. So I, I, it just seems like to me that this is a classic example of, you know, college is not the same as, as the NBA. We've seen it time and time again, Billy Donovan is a head coach and still is, uh, Brad Stevens has succeeded over in Boston, but they're not the same age as, as John Beeline. And so it, it, to move this into, uh, you know, looking forward here, the Cleveland situation, I wrote today that I think, the Blazers should trade for Kevin Love. And I think uh, there's a few things going in here. One, Kevin Love, I think, is a really good player. And I am shocked. When I te- when I was texting executives and just kind of polling people about what Kevin Love's trade value is, it was shockingly low. Like Negative Nate, I, value, I would assume. Negative value, yeah. Said. Yeah, negative yeah. value. What team would want him? Uh, does he put, like, what... What what does he give a contender that uh, that at that price and at that age and th- those years? Why would a team take that on? I got that from several executives, and I was sitting here like, man, I I, I thought that a Portland trade or a Denver trade or a Toronto trade would make sense on some level, but uh, it was met by widespread skepticism about Kevin Love's game. Do you agree with that? Yeah, you can add me to that list because. To me, uh, so Portland in particular, right? If you had to say what is the, what is their biggest need? Like, what do they need to get better at right now? It's probably defense, right? Yep, yep. 
And, and Kevin Love, and this is even a problem back two, three years ago when he was playing with LeBron, and he's not 31 years old. Uh, so defensively to me, he is a center. He's too slow to get out on the floor. If you he get he can't switch. I mean, most teams really like to switch a lot with their four man. He can't do that. Some teams will start with two traditional bigs, but we don't see that too often. Even if that guy's a three point shooter, it's tough for Kevin Love to crash into the lane and then cover ground back to the three point line. That's what your four man needs to do at this point in time in the NBA. So now you're going to play him at center, and he's too slow as a pick and roll defender. If anyone gets ahead of steam at him in a drop coverage, they're just going to go right around him and finish. He can't rotate over and block shots. He'll take a charge every once in a while. So you almost have to play some sort of a hedging scheme, a two-on-the-ball pick-and-roll scheme if he's out there. So if you have him on your team, it's really difficult to have a top-10 defense and probably even an above-average defense. And so with that being the case, he's not – a dominating one-on-one scorer anymore. He's probably a third option offensively on a really good team space. He's a solid to very good offensive player, but not you know a top 15 or 20 offensive player, I'd say. And so then you look at the price tag of $30 million on average over the three years after this one, and you look at his health record as well, where you at a minimum you should expect him to miss 20 games a year and may or may not be available for the playoffs. Put all that in there, and to me, really, his only value is on you know a Phoenix type of team that's just trying to get into the playoffs. Yeah, I have Phoenix as my number three most likely team to acquire him. Um, I don't really have a good reason other than what you just said. It probably gives them a leg up in that slush at the bottom of the Western Conference, and they don't have a second star to go with Devin Booker. And while I, I fear for DeAndre Ayton's uh, ability – to, to cover up for those defensive mistakes by uh, Devin Booker and Kevin Love. I think it makes sense on that, on that level is that Robert Sarver might just look like, hey, we need to end this decade-long drought um, of making the playoffs and let's get a player of that caliber. And who knows, what are we going to spend our cap space on otherwise, right? So the Portland thing for me is also the defensive side of, of things is is obviously a need. But I also think... They need some ball movement. That offense is stagnates after that first pick and roll action. CJ McCollum and Damian Lillard have to work for their buckets almost entirely by themselves. Then you have Hassan Whiteside and Carmelo Anthony who are not long-term options. But just for a point of reference, they're last in assist percentage by a mile in the NBA. And I know that assist percentage isn't the perfect metric for ball movement, but just watch them play. This isn't a team that gets easy looks based on their ball movement. Now, Kevin Love, I think one of his most underrated skills is his ball movement, is his passing, is his vision. And I think in the Cleveland's offense, it's not being utilized enough. He doesn't have the weapons that he can utilize. His top assist target this season is Tristan Thompson. Just to give you an idea of what he's working with there, Darius Garland and and Colin Sexton are not uh, great scorers yet, efficient scorers. So if you put him in the Portland offense as as a third option, I just think he makes everyone around him better. And... I think that is a real need for for the Portland offense. Now, Nurk coming back is a question mark. What is Zach Collins going to look like after his shoulder surgery? And do you feel comfortable having him as your power forward going forward? Now, I I think the answer here is if it's not Kevin Love and they balk at the idea of adding the $90 million over the next three years for Kevin Love, I think he's better offensively than he is a negative defensively. Um, but what are the what are the options that they can do? Because... Right now, we're looking at a 2021 free agent list. Portland is probably not going to be players in the free agency market enough to get a third option there. So I guess they could trade for Danilo Gallinari and then try to retain him after this season? Yeah, maybe. Although I think the fact that they're not any good this year, that it's probably hard for even the rosiest of optimists to construct a scenario in which they get out of the first round this year. Nurkic, who was arguably their second best player until he went down last year, also has been out this passer. entire year. Yep. And probably, you know, he's not going to be able to play his full minutes this year, probably not going to make a full recovery. I think, especially with their record, Neil Olshay is not going to want to do something rash when he doesn't necessarily know what this team is. He can go back and say, oh, you know, we we made it to the West Finals last year 
And when we, and that was without our second best player. And so we get everyone together and then maybe see how Nurkic looks. And maybe this move takes place in the summer as a way to get back into contention. But I mean, they have so much money long-term tied up in Damon CJ already that adding love to me seems like it's, uh, would be a little premature because part of the reason you add Kevin love now is, well, the good year is this year and next year. And then the back end gets really ugly as he gets even worse defensively. Can't do as much one-on-one offensively, even more likely to get hurt as he gets older. So they're not getting any value out of this year because I think they're, they're going to lose in the first round regardless with this group. They're just not a good enough team to say Kevin love comes close to putting us over the top. What is their recourse then? So if they don't acquire Kevin love, what is the way that Portland gets back to the Western conference finals? If, if there is a way, well, there isn't, but if, the, <laughs> but to at least get back to being a solid playoff team, just waiting. I think you, CJ is having a little bit of a bounce back year. Lillard is still really good. If you look at how good they are with Damon CJ on the floor, still, they're still a, a pretty solid team, solid offense. It's just, Without those guys, and their backup forward depth has been tough. They're starting a backup, Carmelo Anthony, right now. They're starting another backup at the three. So, And then the guys behind them haven't really given anything. They think Simons will get better. Collins will come back. He'll get better. Nurkic will be better. And then maybe you see what you've got at the start of next year, and you can even fill in around those guys or do it in the summertime. I think that's the path for them. I think it would be pretty rash to add love as of right now. Cause again, you're just not going anywhere this year regardless. And that contract is just so onerous going on. I mean, I think it could take another year and a half for love to get traded because the other problem that this trade market has right now is there aren't any other bad long-term contracts, right? Like someone is going to have to sign someone to a, a, another three year, $90 million deal that immediately ends up looking even worse than Kevin Love's deal. And then maybe you can trade Love for positive value if you're willing to take on that deal if you're Cleveland. This is something that you talked about on uh, the podcast with John Hollinger that you have. I think it's for the people listening at home. I'm wondering if you could give us kind of just some of the notes about um, going into the trade market. This The trade deadline is in less than a month. What are some of the things that people need to be aware of or some of the things that drive you crazy um, with all the questions? Because you are known as a cap guru, and I'm sure your inbox is fielded every day with, filled with people saying, hey, can you do this sort of thing? Why can't this trade happen? And you just roll your eyes. So what are some of the things, if you could do a PSA for people listening at home, what are some things that you need to understand before we get into the trade market? Well, I do try not to roll my eyes because most of the time, it, like this is complex. It took me years to really understand it fully myself so and it's not people's full-time job to follow the nba so i like that is part of why i exist so i i definitely i, I have some patience with that because yep. a lot of it is somewhat somewhat counterintuitive um but i, I think the the biggest issue is to have an understanding of who can't be traded that's one of the biggest things like you hear a lot of talk ben simmons for example why can't the Miami Heat get LeBron. bradley beal yeah, Bradley Beal is, is another one too, right? And so none of those guys really, because of the rules, Beal 100% and effectively for Simmons and for Lavert can't be traded until the summer. The latter two, because they signed these rookie extensions, and so the cap math, they count at a different incoming and outgoing salary depending on whether you're receiving him or sending him out. And so that just makes it too hard to match salary. Every trade among teams over the... Over the cap pretty much has to match salary unless there's a huge trade exception. And so effectively, Simmons and Levert and Beal aren't going anywhere. A lot of the Lakers guys also aren't going anywhere because this is their second one-year deal in a row for some of these guys. And so when that happens, if they were to get traded, they would lose bird rights, which is the ability of a team that's over the cap to re-sign a player to more money, essentially. So... Teams want those guys for the yeah. guys. Yep. Yeah. So KCP, Rondo, JaVale McGee, all those guys can block a trade. They could be traded, but I'm guessing they probably don't want to leave the Lakers. And KCP is a clutch client, so don't see him necessarily getting sent on either. So, yeah, there, there's a lot of impediments. So that's one of the big ones to 
trading this season uh, for sure. And how does the 2020 free agent market affect the deadline here? Because to me, it's as dry as it's ever been. I mean, when you look at the list, <laughs> the names right now, it used to, Draymond used to be on the list. Kyle Lowry used to be on the list. Eric Gordon, Ben Simmons, Siakam, Sabonis, Jamal Murray, Jalen Brown, Buddy Heald, DeJounte Murray, all are no longer going to be free agents in 2020 because they signed extensions uh, with their team. So now we're left with Anthony Davis. Okay. I don't, I haven't talked to anyone who believes he's not going to be in, uh, in LA again. You have Brandon Ingram, who's a restricted free agent. You have Andre Drummond, who's got a player option. Uh, for next season that he could waive and and get into the free agent market and be the number one free agent. DeMar DeRozan, Gordon Hayward, both have player options for next year that they could waive. I don't know if Gordon Hayward does that, and I don't know if DeMar DeRozan does that. Danilo Gallinari, Fred Van Vliet, Mike Conley has an early termination option, and then Montrez Harrell. Anyone I'm missing here? Not in particular. <laughs> I mean, there, there's, you know, Paul Mills. I mean, there, there's some starters who are available, and I think it for the teams who do have cap space, I mean, most of them are kind of in a rebuilding mode right now. But for the teams that do have cap space, I think you could actually get a decent deal on a starter level of player or two if you're just trying to get better. Like the Hawks, for example, could probably take a major step forward this year if they chose to by signing veteran free agents and wouldn't have to pay through the nose to do so necessarily. There's going to be a lot of vets just looking at the mid-level exception, you know, about $10 million a year or, or – even less than that, uh, unless they go to one of the the forlorn five, as John Hollinger calls them, uh, the bad teams are going to have cap space this year. <laughs> so, but yes, I mean, if you're looking for the type of player where, hey, we're going to clear cap space for this guy, right? That's one of the big motivations for these trades. That was the motivation, uh, ill-fated as it was, for the Chris Porzingis trade last year, for example, for the Knicks, that they wanted to create more cap space, double max space. Well, Double max space when there's zero max players doesn't really help you that much this year. Right. Brandon Ingram is a restricted free agent. So for those uh, out there who uh, expect, you know, a team with cap space to go after Brandon Ingram, the Pelicans are going to hold on to that guy. I mean, it's they have the right of first refusal so they can match any offer that comes in for Brandon Ingram. So you can effectively, in, in my opinion, you might feel differently, take him off the board, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it would surprise me if he and New Orleans don't agree on a deal, you know, really prior to him even hitting the restricted free agent market, essentially. You know, that's one I would expect to get. Assuming he continues to play this way and no uh, recurrence of his health issues, I would expect that within 48 hours of June 30th free agency opening that he'll have a deal with the Pelts. I don't see him getting out on the market. Yeah. So even though he seems like a free agent, he is not a free agent this summer is Giannis Andetokounmpo, and I, I think you were at the Warriors game last night, right? Yes, I was. So what was that like? They, uh, of course, had Greek Heritage Night, <laughs> just like they had uh, Slovenian Heritage Night on uh, when Luka Doncic comes into town. Certainly, I, I know the Warriors would love to get the, their hands on I think a lot of teams would. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not one who's like, you know, going to talk to a bunch of people and be like, oh, you know, what's, what's going to happen with Giannis? I mean, I, and... I think it's far too early to say that the story of this Bucks season has to be written. I mean, they're playing as well as they could possibly be playing. I mean, at a historic level so far this year. That said, there are some concerns that they're a little bit of a one-trick pony when you get into the playoffs. And to me, that's the other thing that I think could really open up the trade market for, say, guys like Chris Paul, maybe a Russell Westbrook, if it doesn't work out for him in Houston, put Love maybe third on that list of these guys who are still good players but have these really long-term contracts, if there's some clarity comes to the Giannis situation this offseason, whether it's by just accepting that designated veteran player extension that the Bucks can offer him uh, as of June 30th, That's or Supermax. Yeah, or not taking it uh, and either getting moved or it being clear that, okay, no, there's reason to keep space open to maybe get him. If there's clarity to that situation. He stays in Milwaukee. I think teams will then value their 2021 space a lot less. And maybe someone like Chris Paul, who would have two years left on his deal at that point, could get moved to, say, a Miami or something like that. But as long as teams are wanting to not you know, make sure that they have the space for Giannis, and there's other free agents that year too, but Giannis is the big, big prize given his youth, that that could open up the trade market if he does, in fact, commit to Milwaukee. 
Now, Cleveland is going to have some cap space this summer. And so, but the impetus for them to move off the Kevin Love contract isn't as big because I don't think, like in years past, you could do the Philadelphia 76ers and just absorb bad contracts and at the price for for exchange of draft picks. So, hey, we'll take on that bad tr- contract, but it's going to cost you a first round pick or it's going to cost you two uh, second round picks. For Cleveland, they could feasibly do that next summer and say, look, we're going to have as much cap space as we can so that we can become one of those uh, draft pick hoarders. But there aren't going to be that many bad contracts out there, at least on good teams that are going to feel like they can get into uh, the max level money. So that might not be an incentive for them. They might just be like, you know, we're going to hold on to Kevin Love, right? Eating bad contracts in years past might have been a feasible strategy, but now it might be like, I don't know if we're going to get any uh, contracts that people are willing to give up a first round pick. Yeah. And we saw a lot of teams trying to move money before last summer. And maybe you'll see a team like the Bucks if they are up against the luxury tax, want to make a move. But there even are not that many teams that are have bad contracts and are really capped out or taxed out at this point either that are trying to be good. You know, so that's a, another thing. You know, maybe maybe Miami moving off of Waiters and James Johnson that that could be a potential destination there where the Cavs could pick up some assets. Sounds like the plan in Oklahoma City is to do the same to take on some bad contracts, so they may have some competition there. But the, the Cavs project to have a pretty decent amount of cap space, about twenty five million when you throw in what's likely to be a, a very high draft, but it could rise a little bit there. So yeah, I mean, to me, I think the bigger reason to move him is just simply because the situation there has become untenable. But it sounds to me when Kevin Love apologized a couple of days ago, we'll see how this, if this beeline thing changes things. But when he apologized a couple of days ago and he said, yeah, I've been acting 13 instead of 31, that it was made clear to him that, Hey, you you either got to play a lot better and shape up, or we're not even going to be able to trade you at all. Or, Hey, we tried trading you. We can't do it. And, this is how it's going to be. So you might as well just like try and accept it a little bit more because it seems like the tantrum did not succeed in getting him moved as of now. Yeah. It's a little chess match, a little, a little game of chicken there with Kevin love is I'm going to create enough of a stink here that they have no choice, but to move me. But that I think depresses his trade value. Cause I think everyone sees that, Hey, Cleveland, you don't have much leverage here, right? Like you don't have much leverage here. Kevin love, you know, he's a, a depreciating player. He's not what he used to be. Obviously, I'm, I'm higher on him than most people, but I think he, he it's not that he misplayed his hand. I just think there's no winners there. I just think it's a bad situation. Yeah. So, um, well, you, well, you could say he misplayed his hand when he signed that contract. Exactly. Exactly. Maybe he had a wink, wink, nudge, nudge uh, agreement that they as soon as he signed it, he was going to get moved somewhere. But um, that hasn't happened. And partly because of yeah. that same contract, right? Yeah, I mean, they would have had to have waited six months with the extension anyway. I mean, I thought they should have been exploring it uh, last year to, to move him and that if there was ever a point in time when he actually was tradable that they should have done it. But, I mean, they obviously signed him to that thinking, oh, hey, he'll be an asset on that deal. And it, to me, it was very clear that he wouldn't be. And it's been clear that he wasn't, especially after he missed most of last year with those toe issues. So you mentioned it uh, a few minutes ago, Russell Westbrook. The Chris Paul trade, it's Russell Westbrook's return to OKC tonight. This When this comes out, it'll be after the fact. Something crazy might happen. Um, but I want to revisit that trade here because I feel like that was a huge moment, not in just in Houston and OKC, but in the NBA because it seemed like Daryl Morey, who is the, the as ben, uh, Bill Simmons called him, the dork Elvis, the guy who is uh, known for his analytical thinking, the, the money ball of the NBA, traded not just Chris Paul, who seems like one of the more efficient uh, analytical darlings of our generation. He traded Chris Paul and two first-round picks and I believe two pick swaps for Russell Westbrook. And it seemed like to me at the time like it was a hasty decision that it was led by James Harden or his owner saying, hey, we need to, we need to switch up here and get Russell Westbrook, get younger, get another superstar, make James Harden happy. It wasn't working out with Chris Paul. And now I kind of feel like we're at this place where 
in the offseason, we, we want to talk ourselves into the fact that Russell Westbrook can change his game and he wants to win a championship. He'll be a better three-point shooter. He won't be as, uh, as careless in the open court. And as I wrote at the time, he is one of the most inefficient uh, transition guys in the NBA. He has a great reputation as a guy who's up and down incredible cannonball out there. But I do think that people overlook that, you know, they see the highlights, but they don't realize that a lot of times he's destructive in the open court. He make, he forces a lot of bad passes. He's, he gets double-digit assists, but he is not a natural passer. He tries to thread the needle a lot. And he has one of the highest turnover rates in the NBA in transition. I just felt like this was not going to go very well for Houston. It hasn't. It hasn't been destructive. Uh, Houston's doing, you know, playing at a, a high level. But, man, what Chris Paul is doing in OKC – Part of me, Nate, just says, why couldn't Houston just run this back? And maybe we don't have all the information about the Chris Paul, James Harden dynamic, but Chris Paul is so good, man. He's so good. And if I had to choose one or the other for Houston Rockets this year, it's Chris Paul. My initial reaction to the trade was Houston might be giving up a little bit of upside for this year. I think that in the playoffs, at his best, Chris Paul is way better defensively. He's a better off-ball player in terms of his shooting. And I think Chris actually might be better at beating switches even at this point than Russell Westbrook is because Westbrook doesn't have a ton of moves. And you mentioned that his jumper, for whatever reason, has completely abandoned him over the last two, three seasons. But what we're forgetting pretty, I think we're being too easy to forget, is it looks great because Chris Paul has been healthy for the first half of this year, right? I mean, I don't think he's missed a single game. Maybe they've rested him a couple of times. But the concern was just that he wasn't going to be available when it mattered. And so you may be, yeah, if Chris Paul was humming at his absolute best, if age didn't cause him to lose a bunch, I mean, that was also another big risk with him getting into his mid-30s now. So this has gone, like, among the range of possible outcomes, this has probably gone about as good as you would have thought it could for OKC. He's played about as well and been as healthy in OKC as you would have expected Yep. Where, you know, Westbrook, I think, has probably been at the lower end of his range. Granted that he was coming off of surgery early in the season. I think he's looked a little better lately. We got to at least give him credit for that. But you said it there, is that he was coming off knee surgery. So the idea that Chris Paul was more of an injury risk at yep. this age, like, I, I don't know. Russell Westbrook not playing on back-to-back, second night of back-to-backs this season, I think, tells the story, right? Is that they don't trust, or at least they want to put him on the on the shelf for those back-to-backs because they worry about the knee. Yeah, although, I mean, he hasn't really suffered, like, huge injuries to that knee uh, other than that 13-14 season. He hasn't missed a lot of time. Uh, so I, I think it, it's certainly given where Paul was in the age, I think it's still a better bet that he would be healthy when it mattered. And then also you're looking at maybe next year in particular that there is a feeling maybe that Westbrook could be better. But he certainly – I I'm – quite open to the idea that that may not be the case, right? I mean, if, if Paul is healthy, he's got more of a jumper. He could age better. Westbrook, you know, is so, so reliant on athleticism. I do think Westbrook as well. I mean, I, I'm aware that the numbers are not that good with him and Harden on the floor. They play better offensively when Russ is off the floor than when he's on uh, and Harden is on the floor. But I do think that the numbers on Westbrook might, I mean, hilarious as it is to say this, might actually be underrating what he does because he does push the pace overall. Like their pace has moved from one of the slowest in the NBA to one of the faster ones. And yeah, he is not that efficient in transition relative to other players. But as a whole, transition is more efficient than other players. So even if you're inefficient in transition, you're probably still more efficient as a team than you would be in the half court. And those numbers too can usually punish point guards for because they're usually the ones pushing the ball. If there's a decision to be made, transition uh, causes more turnovers just generally. So, yeah, his numbers aren't as good in transition, but he's still, and this is definitely true in OKC, still transition is more efficient than the half court, even if you're bad in transition in most cases. So, I'm, uh, and if he just pushes the ball up and passes it to, and they do two or three more passes, that doesn't show up in those numbers necessarily. Whereas, you know, when he does that and makes the turnover, it does show up. So a lot of guys, a lot of point guards will have, you know, kind of negative looking numbers in transition. But the overall team numbers in transition are kind of what I try to focus on more there. So we're going to go into a different direction here on uh, uh, one of the bigger, more interesting teams at at the trade deadline here is the Atlanta Hawks. Is that they were in talks or I guess they were discussing a couple of days ago 
Andre Drummond, a trade with the Detroit Pistons for Andre Drummond, and um, to pair with John Collins and Trey Young. And you sent me a list of your top 10 prospects. And I guess the criteria here is they have to be 23 or younger. Is it 22 or younger or 23 or younger? Yeah, 23 or younger as of February 1st, because that just makes it easy to search on basketball reference. Yes. So um, you have a top 10 list, and I'll just run it through here uh, because Trey Young is on this list, pretty high on this list, and I actually agree with you. But uh, tier one, you have Luka Doncic. I think it's clear that he is on a a tier of its own. Uh, Tier two, you have Zion alone at tier two. So he's the number two player on your list. And then tier three, you have Ja Morant and Trey Young on tier three. Then you have tier four, you have Devin Booker at five, Donovan Mitchell, Jalen Brown, Bam Adebayo, Brandon Ingram, and Ben Simmons rounding out your top 10. Okay. Let's get into one. I think the the Trey Young is probably the most polarizing because I think there's a lot of Isaiah Thomas here with his game in the sense that he's so good offensively, but defensively he is so much poses a lot of problems for you that you have to clean up defensively. Trey Young is an unbelievably amazing offensive talent. When you watch him, you might be blown away by his deep threes. You might be blown away by his handle. You might be blown away by his vision and his passing. All of that. He has the full package offensively, and he and he pulls. I think defenders. Uh, you know, he's a smaller guy on the floor, but he is different in Steph Curry because he is such great. He's such a great passer, and he sees plays before they happen. Which Steph Curry is amazing, but he isn't on the same level as Trey Young as a passer. And I think if you surround him with defenders, defensive-minded players, if you have a Rudy Gobert, a next generation's Rudy Gobert on Trey Young's team. I think the the reputation for Trey Young goes sky high. I think a lot of people, what they're dinging Trey Young for, the record, the worst team in the Eastern Conference, I think is a is a reflection of the roster, not necessarily a reflection of Trey. Yeah, I agree with you. One thing I'll add, Jason Tatum was also in the same tier. He was number 11, but I, uh, I kind of had a tier of those last seven guys all being really close to one another. So yep. before you guys tweet me about what a moron I am for not having Tatum in there. You can you can tweet me what a moron I am for not having Shea Gilgis Alexander or Jaron Jackson in the in the same tier. Um but yeah, I think to me if you look at the differential not only between when he's on the floor and when he's off because part of that is just they don't have a backup point guard, but look at some of these three-point percentages of the guys that he's playing with offensively and you might say, "Oh, you know, they're 35th percentile or something with him offensively." On the floor, they've been a, a little bit better in these last couple of games uh, against pretty good defenses. But like he just what he does, and just if he had guys who could convert threes in an average rate around them, it would look so much better offensively. And yeah, you know what? The defense is not good. He is a six foot one, twenty one year old point guard who has no strength and also has to do every single thing offensively on every single possession is getting denied. It has to make explosive moves with the ball every single possession. So yeah, his defense is not going to be very good, but he's still a point guard and he's not the problem with their close to bottom ranked defense. I mean, he is a problem, but he's not the problem. And I think they have bigger problems. And yeah, there's a lot of players where if you just put other defensive players around them, they can look a lot better. And yeah, I mean, I think, like he's a 21 year old who's putting up like 40 point triple doubles and doing it efficiently. And you know, these games he's last two games, you know, he's positive and they end up losing by 10 because in the 10 minutes he's off the floor, they get smoked. So I, I think there's this idea. Oh, he's on a losing team. They really, people don't understand how awful at center at backup point guard playing two rookies on the wing and then some of the injury issues they've had, people don't understand how terrible that roster is around him. Well, I, I say the same thing about Kevin Love, Nate. I say <laughs> the same thing. Like, I'm looking at the Cleveland roster. I'm like, how does he have, you know, 2.9 assists a game, right? Like, I look at this situation with Trey Young, and I'm like, man, if he just has anybody. And John Collins has been out with the suspension. Um, but I don't see Andre Drummond being the answer there. I don't. I think Andre yeah. Drummond. How, how good do you think he is, Andre Drummond? I used to think he would evolve. Uh, I used to think – I just feel like he plateaued like year one in the league. (laughs) 
I remember we would have these conversations with Ethan Strauss where it was like Anthony Davis or Andre Drummond, right? Because of how efficient he was and he was playing with like uh, Dwight Howard. Uh, his player efficiency rating was Dwight Howard asking. He was young. He was 19 in the league and putting up these numbers. But I don't think he's developed in the same way defensively that I, I hope that he could translate some of his athleticism. And he's, he's got an amazing second jump. His, his jump is incredible. I did this story a couple years ago at ESPN. He has the, the best jump ball success rate in NBA history. Like as, soon as, as we've tracked like the jump balls uh, winning rate, Andre Drummond is by far number one. And no huh. one comes close. And it's a lot of yeah. that second jump or that first jump. He's just so much quicker than anybody else. And he gets a lot of rebounds that way. He gets tons of rebounds, but I don't know how much it translates defensively. And I don't think he has the instincts defensively to be Trey Young's uh, number two in, in the sense that they could be a uh, a duo that puts the fear in, some, in the Eastern Conference elite. I don't think so. I think he is an athlete. I think it would be fun. It would be Lob City Atlanta with John Collins and Andre Drummond. Uh, and the passing instincts of of Trey Young, but I do I give him do I is he a max level player to me? No, I don't think of him as that type of player. I think he's a lot of box score stats, and I think if you're going to play in this day and age at the center position, you got to be able to shoot and you got to be able to defend at a high level. Otherwise, I don't I don't see you as a max level center. Yeah, if he's not at the center position, to me, there are the players who are going to push you to be in the top ten on defense. Or even rarer, your Jokic, your Embiid, your Towns, who could probably push you to be a top ten level of offense. And you know the Sixers aren't that, but Embiid, they have a weird team around him. So if you're not a difference maker at the center position, and you really you have to look at the effect on the team, even the rebounding numbers, right? I mean, Drummond helps the team's offensive rebounding, but defensive rebounding, they've never really been any better with him on the floor either. And, you know, the Pistons have never really been a particularly elite unit on either end of the floor either. And if you watch the, the film, he's not that much of a defensive difference maker. I think he's lost, even at 26, he's lost some athleticism. He's, you know, never been, you know, the most felt-looking guy either. So, yeah, I think, and when you get beyond the top tier of guys, you know, Rudy Gobert would be in that category defensively. Once you get beyond that top tier of guys, Centers are kind of, you know, is it really worth it to pay more than, you know, 10, 15 million a year for a center who's not going to really make a huge difference for you? And you could even argue that you shouldn't pay 15 million a year for a center because the position is so deep that the the difference between the 15th best center and the 40th best center is smaller than it's ever been. So, yeah, I don't think that paying him. $28 $28 million is a great idea. He also can opt out his contractual situation. You're going to have to either – you don't want to give up assets for him because you're going to have to either give him a long-term contract that's going to be too expensive given the number he's coming off of, which is 28 or you, he'll just leave. And so that's – if now, if they're going to say you're basically – it's a salary dump and you kind of get him for free and what else are they going to do with their money this summer, okay, maybe I can see that. And he their center rotation is terrible, so he could – help them look a lot better just because he's replacing guys who are awful. But if you're like, no, this is the the second guy that we're making a long-term commitment to next to Trey Young, he needs an elite defensive player next to him. And Drummond, as you said, is not that. Is Bam Adebayo that to you? Yeah, I think he, he would be, especially, especially centers. Uh, the other thing I would say about centers is if you have legitimate two-way ability, yeah. that's the other one. I mean, in Adebayo, his ability to switch – protect the rim, his passing ability, he can grab and go. The versatility that he has where he's just plug and play on so many different teams, that's huge. And, you know, he doesn't have much shooting range, but he can basically do everything else on the basketball floor other than shoot. Yeah, and I think if you had started this list last year or in the summer, uh, if you've written this list, you have Bam at number eight on the the young player list, top yeah. prospects. I think a lot of people would be surprised by that. Also, Jalen Brown in there too. But someone in the league asked me this, and I, I, I had to sit there and think about it. Is Bam going to be for, uh, all NBA? At center, you were saying? Yeah, at center. Yeah, so who are the top uh, yeah. centers in the league? You got Rudy Gobert. You got Jokic. You've got Bam. You've got... I mean, it's it's Carl not, Anthony Towns. Carl Anthony Towns. Still, although yeah. he might actually have to come back from this knee injury that he's been questionable for for the last eleven games at some point. Yeah. So if Bam gets All NBA, that puts him in Supermax territory. That's interesting for the Miami Heat. 
Well, he would have to make it again next year as well to be eligible. Yes. You'd have to make in it two years. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or two of the three preceding seasons or that season. So it's essentially irrelevant whether he makes it this year, except for the anchoring that might cause him to again make it next year. Right. But I, I don't I don't put him in the same category as Towns, Jokic, and Bead or Gobert quite yet. And you know, I mean and especially we mentioned the anchoring like Jokic is really coming on of late, like he's getting back to where he was. You know, he's 33 and 47 point games his last two games. He, he's gotten his offensive aggressiveness back. He's starting to really score one on one in the post again. So I think that's it. Uh, I wouldn't put him on that level yet. But he, he should make the All Star team this year, I think, though. Now, Ben Simmons is number 10 on your list. Uh, I think you had him number five on the previous one, number five in the previous one before that, yeah. unless I'm reading this incorrectly. You had him number three. So is it just the three-point shooting? Is it the fact that we're year, what, three now, that we we still haven't seen it? We had a lot of talk in the offseason. Everyone and their sister is yelling at Ben Simmons to shoot the three, and he still hasn't added that or felt comfortable enough. Is that a reflection of him, or do you think it's a reflection of his environment that in Philly that maybe he needs a change of scenery to add that? Because that's my feeling. Is Ben Simmons, I feel like if he wasn't in Philly where he's hearing it all the time and maybe if it wasn't such a big story and he was able to start new, maybe he would feel like, all right, you know what? This is the next chapter. I need to uh, develop that that part of my game. It just I just needed to have a change and then I can do that. I would still believe in Ben Simmons as a top five prospect in the league, but you have him down at 10. Do you think that's the most controversial one on the list? I don't think so anymore. Before we crap on Simmons, let's give him credit for the way he's developed the other facets of his game. I mean, I think he has taken incremental steps forward in things other than shooting. But yeah, he's a weird player. And to me, people have focused on the three, the corner three, can he space the floor when he doesn't have the ball? I actually think it's a bigger deal that he can't shoot like a 15-footer when he's on ball that he can't really run a pick and roll because you can just go under on him every time, or you can switch onto him with a center that he then is not going to be able to beat because he can't shoot more than three feet away from the basket. And that's where centers are bigger than him. And they can just wait for him there if they switched onto him. So to me, the whole thing starts with, well, he's an off ball player, but if he could just be a good enough shooter, even to make 15 footers on the ball. So now you can say, Oh yeah, we're going to actually throw him the ball. Uh, either to run pick and roll with Embiid or at the end of games or if he got a little bit better in the post he could uh, back down into post position against smaller players if he could be a better on ball player that in some ways would be more important than his ability to stand there and take one corner three a game like Brett Brown wants but again whether it's that or the three point shooting off ball one of the two has got to develop and it just it's gotten to the point where you just don't believe that it's going to. And he's such a bad free throw shooter, too, that it's it's hard to necessarily believe that it's going. I mean, guys who shoot – I did a study on this way when I first started writing like eight years ago about how guys who shoot 60% and under from the foul line basically don't develop jumpers. There are just so few examples of that, especially on a large number of attempts. Like Bruce Bowen shot it really poorly, but you know he was shooting like one attempt a game. Whereas you know, Ben Simmons shoots enough that we know that he is a fundamentally a 60% free throw shooter. So those guys, unless they get better at foul shooting, don't tend to develop jumpers either that are passable. Yeah, I think you're right. Is I, I wasn't crapping on Ben Simmons. It was just more like, given the slide that you have him on the list. And look, he's getting older and he hasn't gotten... You know, he hasn't gotten into the MVP conversation that I think a lot of people expected at this stage. But he's he has a Giannis-type ceiling to me. And defensively, he's incredible. I think in in more ways than Giannis does, his ability to lock up guards and his versatility on that end is is a huge asset. And it's one of those things that you can't see in a box score. And it's harder to to uh, quantify that. And certainly in conversations with your with your buddies at the bar, certainly like defensive versatility isn't going to really trump the the whole non shooting thing. So you know, it's funny actually. In some of my conversations. People probably like certain people will use that maybe more because because it's not quantifiable. They almost use it as a trump card now. Of <laughs> I know like, what you're saying, yeah, you, you know what I'm saying. They just be like, 
oh, but his defense is so much better. It's like, well, that that outweighs the fact that this guy is averaging 30 and the other guy is averaging uh, six points. Maybe let's not go crazy here. But, no, I mean, like Simmons to me, he's settling in. My projection for him would be, you know, kind of lower end all-star in the East. Where So I just don't – I mean, as amazing as his physical tools are, I don't believe he has the upside because I don't project him to ever shoot it. I still believe you believe he's gonna he'll come. I mean, he, it's funny when I saw him at the 2015 Nike Hoop Summit, he was like shooting three pointers from the FIBA line. It, you know, it wasn't like going in at a tremendous rate, but he like he looked comfortable taking it at least. I think it's a case of the yips, and I've written about this before, not specifically with with Ben Simmons, but you know, just shooting the Nick Andersons, the DeAndre Jordans, the Andre Drummonds. Drummond and Jordan have figured it out. On the free throw line, I'll just say, at the free throw line, they've they've figured it out. And for years, people said, you know, Andre Drummond would never be a passable offensive player because he's just going to be hacked all the time. And he's been better. And same with DeAndre Jordan. I think, actually, those two players, they're like a good proxy for each other. DeAndre Jordan and Andre Drummond, which you can talk yourself into their athleticism and their ability to own a, a defensive uh, system. But I just I'll believe it when I see it with Andre Drummond. I never believed it with yeah. uh, DeAndre Jordan. But I think with yeah, ben you, you know, I would actually say re- real quickly, Jordan at his peak is way better than Drummond in part because at least offensively, Jordan knew his role. Yeah. He'd get up for more alley oops probably than Drummond, but he wouldn't try and do stuff other than that. Like the Drummond post ups have kind of been a bane for some time, and then I think Jordan. You know, we remember him as the defender now. I think he, you know, back in the 14-15 range, he had more mobility. I think he he was more of an intimidator at the rim than Drummond. Even if he was overrated back then, I still think he, at his peak, is a better player than Drummond. All right, let's take a quick break to hear about a podcast that should be in your rotation. Hello, this is Matt Mayoko, host of the 49ers Insider Podcast. On the latest episode, Warriors GM Bob Myers joined the show to discuss the dynamics of the GM-coach relationship and why John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan have become so successful. Their connectivity, their trust in each other, they've weathered criticism. I'm sure they've heard themselves criticized. They've heard their organization criticized. They've heard their decisions criticized, and they didn't break. Make sure to visit NBCSportsBayArea.com and download the 49ers Insider Podcast for free on your podcast provider. Now, back to the conversation. When I talk about Ben Simmons, I, I feel like there might be something that unlocks because I think the skills are there. I think the the tools are there for him to become a jump shooter. And, and watching him in practice and watching him at uh, pregame, it just feels like we're, we're just there's a there's just a switch. There's just something that needs to click. And I'm probably higher on Ben Simmons. Let's see who else you have here. Ooh, mm, Brandon Ingram. Like who would I put him above on your list? You have Devin Booker at five, Donovan Mitchell at six, seven, Jalen Brown, eight, Bam Adebayo, nine, Brandon Ingram, ten, Ben Simmons. I probably have him higher than Donovan Mitchell. I probably have him. Yeah, Devin Booker. That's interesting. You're higher on Devin Booker than I am. I probably have Ben Simmons slightly ahead of him too. But man, yeah, it's hard. I understand that viewpoint. I mean, I think Booker to me has made a lot of strides over the last year or so. I mean, he was someone that I got a lot of crap for for having him too low. You know, I think I had him around 11 last year. Although in the, again in the same tier as guys who are in the top 10, you know, they were kind of splitting hairs between guys in the, in the same tier. And here again, I you could very easily see Simmons being better than Booker. But Booker, the way he's shown – the defense is still terrible. It's really yeah. regressed after an okay start to the year. But the way he's shown the ability to play off ball, some of the cutting, some of the transition, like I feel much better about his ability to fit with another really good player in time than I did before when last year it was, okay, back it out, pick and roll, really slow, got to have the ball in your hands all the time. Uh, so I like I've really liked his off ball game, his post game. Like he he's shown the the way that playing with Ricky Rubio has really unlocked him, and he's gotten a lot more efficient in his own offense as well. Like that's been an encouraging to me. So last thing before you go, do you think Marcus Thompson landed the uh, slugs joke better than you landed your joke with Rick Carlisle? Give me the breakdown. <laughs> Give me the Nate Duncan breakdown of Marcus Thompson from the Athletic asking Steve Kerr last night. An inside joke, inside baseball joke about the slugs and uh, John Beeline, but it didn't quite land. Well, he chose a much better quarry than I did <laughs> for, <laughs> for the joke. Uh, yeah, I mean, because 
Steve didn't even know the story. He had no idea what, what even was going on. And he still could like recognize that a joke was being made and like asked about it. And then, uh, he even had some great improv afterwards where he's like, yeah, you know, we we're really flying around like bugs out there. I don't know if that was if that was intentional, but <laughs> but that was pretty hilarious. So, yeah, I mean, I think uh, if I, I'm used to Steve Kerr, I knew Rick Carla is not the, the same kind of guy. So I was just like, you know what? Like, let's not take ourselves too seriously. Let's see what happens if I do this. And yeah, you know, he didn't take it that well, but it really doesn't matter that he didn't ultimately. It was awesome. I loved it. I love the joke. I was there with you. I was there with you. I think I think Rick Carlisle, I don't know what it was that I, I think Rick Carlisle, if you had had more of like a a history with Rick Carlisle knew but Tim McMahon has dropped like bombs on on Rick Carlisle and, and they've been known they've known each other for years and years and years. And still I just don't think he has the same rapport with reporters or the sense of humor that say uh that say Steve Kerr would. So I think Marcus was like you said, I think he was working at an advantage and it might have been just too soon. We we're all on Twitter all the time, so we think everyone knows what we saw on Twitter I and mean, everyone's in on the joke, but these coaches, I think in some ways they've isolated themselves from that conversation because it's simply not healthy to do that. So yeah. Well, yeah. Rick Carlisle might, might be part of that. I mean, Steve, it, the news came out during the game, so he probably wasn't <laughs> going to have like checked Twitter on his phone between the game ending, talking to his team and the press conference. But Ray Ritter was there to, to inform him because Ray is all over the news at all times. So last week, Chris Haynes was on the pod, and Chris Haynes said that at the media jam last year, that there was a player that was going to be on, there was a former player that was going to join the media jam. Do you know who he was recruiting or said was going to show up and try to play in the media jam last year? No, I don't. I know Quinn Cook was there watching it, but, uh, and, and he, he was nice enough to say that I, uh, I had good verticality. He was also nice enough not to comment on the fact that, you know, on half of the possessions, I didn't actually cross half court to get onto the offensive side of the ball. Uh, it's but, rough, man. <laughs> full, full court, running full court is a different beast. It's, it's, look, for those who have not played with Nate Duncan, he is a truck out there. He is strong. He's, he's strong. He's like, uh, he's like Steven Adams amongst our group. He is just, he's a big dude. Uh, how tall are you, Nate? Six seconds. Yes. Yeah. So you're you're out there, and you're always the center, and you got some more skills than just being a center out there. So the when when Chris Haynes dropped this name, my immediate thought was, oh man, I feel so bad for Nate because you would have to pick up this guy, Kendrick Perkins. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah that that would have been. I mean, all the times that I have referenced the uh, the Kendrick Perkins memorial post up when OKC would just start every game oh, yeah. with the post up for him. Uh, it would be renamed the Nate Duncan Memorial Post Up because he would have killed me. <laughs> would, <laughs> have yeah. you played with any any former players before? Not that recently. I, at the G League Showcase in maybe like fourteen or fifteen, Alan Houston and Trajan Langdon played. I was guarding Alan Houston a few times. Alan really is, doesn't play very much because his like Achilles are pretty sore. But he got out there and played. It was, it was a bunch of you know like video coordinators, like ex college guys playing you know who worked for uh, G League teams and you know everyone gets up at six in the morning before the games and plays so I was guarding Allen Houston a few times he was I think it was like 43 at the time and you know he was just like I was like oh this is a pretty good contest no he is he still had like that high release would so just go in every single time back in like college a guy named Linton Johnson who had a cup of coffee would later have a cup of coffee with the Bulls he actually got a lot better to get into the NBA no one thought he would make the NBA at the time but you know, he was just on the Tulane team. And so one time we played one-on-one. I was not on the Tulane basketball team. And he beat me like 11 to 1. I, I had to do this like impossible Michael Jordan fadeaway over it was like the only way I scored. Now, now, granted, it was make it, take it. So I probably would have done a little bit better if it was like normal rules. He, you know, he dropped like eight straight points on me. But yeah, it was, uh, I was not close to being an NBA player. Let's just put it that way. Well, you ranked the top 10 players, top prospects. So who are your top five media players? I'm not included. I'm a, I'm exempt from this list because I, I'm right here. So you can't put me at number one. I'm just telling you. You can't put me at number one, Nate. So give me your top five media basketball players uh, that you've played with. Oh, man. You know, it's so tough because 
their vagaries of like who happens to not be injured and who happens to like actually be in shape. You know, Beckley Mason back when he was a media guy was awesome. He's probably the guy I would say is up there. I mean, Haynes, uh, he's lost a bunch of weight uh, since last year. I actually want to see what he looks like uh, playing this year. <laughs> he got, he's on the dream on diet. Yeah. Well, cause he was like telling me he could dunk and then he went in and he was like, he missed by like a foot, but yeah, he's, he's lost a bunch of weight now. So uh, maybe he can still get up there. He and I are pretty close to the same age though. Adam Martis is actually a really good post player shooter. Like he actually, it, it, it's funny that he covers Nicole Jokic. Cause I would actually say his game is like very Jokic like Rob Mahoney also Jokic like, yeah. You know, and, and he can shoot outside pr- pretty well too. Uh, you know, there's, I, I mean, Trey obviously, um, would have to be on there if we're counting him as, if we're denigrating him with the term, uh, media member, I, I don't know how, we, how he would feel about that. Um, and I'm like, Schiller's good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He's, I mean, he played at Sanford. So, so, and I could put myself up there maybe like <laughs> yeah. a couple of years ago, but now I'm just like. You know, I'm not healthy enough anymore on a regular basis. I mean, like I, I sort of got back in shape and was able to play in that media game. But, you know, I play like four times a year now because like, you know, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm getting back into it. And then I immediately like developed Achilles soreness that just like kept me out. For, like, you look like Patrick Ewing out there after the third possession. Just I, oh. I looked like I looked like Patrick chewing, actually. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, who's the best shooter in the crew, like in the best shooter in media core. David Meneman. I have played yeah, with him. Yeah, that's true. But he can't do anything else other than that. I mean, he's like mm. deadly when he's left open. But if you just know like, okay, this guy can shoot, let's cover him, then he, he doesn't do that much else. But he will space the floor for you. He's, he's an important role player. Yeah, he, he I would say he's better than a role player out there. But you know what? I had to guard him. I don't know if you've had to guard him before, but he's 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 a tough guard because you want to like take your eye off and and take a couple possessions off in the shell game sense where you're just like I'm off the ball. I don't have to. I don't have to stick to the shooter. But he was killing me out there. So he's a great shooter. Yeah. No. Absolutely. For sure. Uh, Chris Broussard also really good. Uh, yeah. He he played. I've never played. He's also a little older now. I think too. Like isn't oh, he? He's he like still close bring it, man. Right? He can still yeah. bring it. Uh, I yeah. Never with, played with him. I played with Steve Smith before. Uh, I played with Brent Barry before. I think this is in like, this is what happens at the finals. There's a lot of dead time in, in between games and you're just, it's almost like school is out. You're almost like, all right, we finally got to the finals. Everyone just ca- kind of wants to celebrate the whole season and you get an off day and you go play in, in, in the final city and like Brent Barry came out. And the thing about Brent Barry is these guys are so much better than the average Joe and you could tell because Brent Barry dominated and he stood 30 feet away from the basket. Like yeah. he didn't even cross half court and he was still killing everybody out there because he could pull up from 30 feet. He could pass from 30 feet. He was just so much better than everybody else. And he didn't even have to get in like even close to three point line to dominate. No, it, it's absolutely insane. And I mean, the beautiful thing about basketball is, you know, as long as the guy that you are guarding and the guy who's guarding you is like kind of close to your skill level, you can still play with much better players. Like there's always a role for everyone too. like, you can always at least like get a rebound or if you can shoot it all, or maybe you can like defend or like Set a get on transition. Yep. yep. Yeah. Now that's not true in the NBA because you know, guys are really like locked in on the scouting report and like, Oh, we're not going to guard this guy. But you know, you know, for most people, even if you're not that skilled, as long as you can just, make a layup and like run around and defend and rebound. Like there's something for you to do that can help your team. Usually, unless you're just, you know, matched up against someone who's completely overwhelming you. But usually in these games, it's like, you know, the, the guys who can guard each other, guard each other. Nate Duncan, tell the people where they can find your work. When you do these top 10 prospects lists, do you publish them in written form or is it always, you just make sure people hear it? No, I do publish that on my Patreon that I have with Danny LaRue. Will usually anything that we do, we'll publish uh, written stuff of that. I mean, it's not we don't actually like really write it up. Um, and then we also do a, a fun podcast that's a mailbag podcast uh, once a month uh, for subscribers. And we also have the NBA Cast, which is a live second screen thing that we do. We're doing that actually for OKC and. Houston tonight. You, you go back and check that out if you're interested. Uh, and then got the Dunked On podcast and the Hollinger and Duncan podcast as well. But keep up with all that. Uh, it's all the links are in my Twitter bio. Man, one of the best follows in the NBA. And uh, 
also really good at basketball. So if you have the chance to play us on the court, I will be making sure that I am not guarding Nate out there. So hopefully I'll see you around. I'm actually, are you going to be at Slovenian night number two on Tuesday, Dallas Warriors? Yeah. Yeah, I will be there actually. I will be there too. So I will see you then and uh, we'll actually revisit all the hate that you got on this podcast and do another one sometime soon. All right. Thanks for having me, Tom. All right. That'll do it for this week's episode of the Haber Show podcast. If you haven't listened to my episode with Chris Haynes from Yahoo Sports, go listen to that. We get into a lot of the trade talks, Damian Lillard, what the Blazers will do. Also, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Go tell your friends. Go tell your family. Go tell Twitter. Go tweet that out, please, if you like the show. Go follow Nate Duncan, at Nate Duncan, N-A-T-E-D-U-N-C-A-N-N-B-A. That's Nate Duncan NBA on Twitter. All right, until next time.